This is the Future World of Work Life After Lockdown podcast with Charlotte Smith of the Walker Morris Employment Team and Claire Burrows of the Walker Morris Regulatory Team, recorded on Thursday, the 14th of May, 2020. I think we will start the session now. So thank you for joining us to talk about life after lockdown and the future world of work. Although it's probably more accurate to say that we're talking about this long road out of lockdown and what businesses can do to prepare for that. So it's been a really busy few days. We obviously had the Prime Minister's announcement on Sunday, changing the message from stay at home to stay alert, and then the subsequent confusion and commentary about what that change in message meant. And it did seem that there was a great emphasis on getting the UK back to work after that announcement. On Monday, we then had a raft of publications setting out these new COVID secure guidelines, and there was eight sector-specific guides which were published on Monday. And then on Tuesday, we had Rishi Sunak announcing that there would be an extension to the furlough scheme until the end of October, so quite a long extension. So I think there's been lots going on, lots of information out there and lots of publications out there for businesses to get to grips with. So it is a bit of a minefield at the moment, and we are hoping that today we can make some sense of all of that for you. And the way we've tried to do that is to take some key quotes from the government guidance and to use those to introduce topics and talk about the issues which then flow from those really key statements that the government's made. So just to introduce who we are, I am Charlotte in the employment team here at Walker Morris. So I will talk about the employment angle to all of this. And we've also got my colleague, Claire, who is in the regulatory team specialising in health and safety to talk you through those all-important risk assessments. I've also got Frankie, who's qualifying into the regulatory team, who is operating the slides in the background for us and can hopefully act as question master when we have a Q&A session at the end. So if you do want to ask questions, there will be a Q&A function on your right-hand side on the webinar, and you can ask them throughout the webinar, but we will deal with them at the end. If there's anything that we don't answer, then please do feel free to email us, and our contact details are on the slide there for you. We will also send you a copy of the slides and a copy of a checklist document that we've prepared after the webinar. So, moving on to the topics then, please, Frankie. So, Claire will look at the employer's health and safety obligations, first of all, and what the key legal obligations are. She'll then move on to look at coronavirus risk assessment and the COVID secure guidelines that the government has published. Now, as I mentioned, there was eight sector-specific publications that were made but we're aiming here to give you know, a general overview to all businesses rather than look at the specifics. But if you do have a specific question, then please feel free to ask it. And she's had the joy of reviewing all of those documents. So I will then take over and talk about employees' rights and how to deal with employee concerns on the return to work. And then we will look at post-furlough planning and the future and planning, you know, your business strategies and HR strategies. And then we will have a Q&A session at the end. So we hope to leave, you know, 10 minutes at the end to answer your questions. So I think the government's core message is obviously that the return to work must be a safe return and must start with a risk assessment. So I will hand to Claire to talk you through that first. Lovely. Thank you, Charlotte. And good afternoon, everybody. Um, by way of further introduction, as Charlotte mentioned, I'm a solicitor in Walker Morris's regulatory team. Uh, one of my particular areas of expertise is health and safety law, 
and I've advised numerous clients across various sectors over the last decade. Principally, I advise businesses who are carrying out internal investigations or who are facing enforcement action followed by, uh, sorry, as a result of an alleged breach of their health and safety obligations, which could be an accident, a fatality, or simply a technical breach. This often involves a wholesale review of their health and safety policies and procedures to identify any areas of non-compliance and how they can improve their safety system and culture. So this afternoon, as Charlotte's mentioned, I'll be providing a reminder to businesses about your health and safety obligations um, and how you can navigate through the current climate to ensure a safe return for your workforce in these unprecedented times. So as you can see on the slide, the guidance um, from the government during Boris's update on Sunday evening um, and followed by the guidance paper issued on Monday it's very clear that the government is keen to move into the first phase of the road out of lockdown. And this phase has been termed the contain, delay, research and mitigate phase. The government guidance makes it clear that the coronavirus pandemic is not a short-term crisis, but rather a long-term problem and that there's no easy or quick solution. And they've made it clear, again, that without the development of a vaccine, we can only reliably control the infection with forms of social distancing. Obviously, one of the biggest challenges is that the virus's spread is difficult to detect, with people carrying the virus asymptomatically for a number of days. So the government's plan is going to be heavily reliant on widespread compliance to avoid the R or infection rate of the virus rising above that all-important number one. The government's guidance reiterates that the central aim of the plan is to return to life as close to normal as possible, for as many people as possible, as fast and as fairly as possible, and in a way that avoids a new epidemic, minimises lives lost, and maximises health, economic, and social outcomes. Clearly, the economic effect of the pandemic is widespread and significant. The household names that have gone into administration over the last couple of months, along with the uncertainty in certain sectors, such as aviation and hospitality, is clear evidence of the impact the coronavirus is having. The cost of the government of the 7.5 million people on the furlough scheme is obviously astronomical. And notwithstanding the support available, unemployment is rising from a 40-year low, with 1.8 million households having made claims for universal credit between the 16th of March and the 28th of April this year. So phase one of the government's plan therefore places significant emphasis in stimulating the economy by getting people back to work. They say that this will minimise the long-term health effects as deprivation due to economic impacts is strongly linked to ill health. They say it will protect the country's long-term economic future and ensure the sustainability of public finances. So as a result, whilst the government announced that for the foreseeable future, workers should continue to work from home where possible, from Wednesday the 13th of May, so yesterday, all workers who, can continue, who cannot work from home should travel to work if their workplace is open. They've also stressed that for sectors of the economy that are allowed to open, open they should be they should be opening including food production construction manufacturing logistics distribution and scientific research labs to support businesses in these sectors sectors as charlotte's already mentioned the government has published their covid secure guidelines and um, stating that businesses should follow these guidelines as soon as practical I'll return to the guidelines and how businesses can get their employees safely back to work shortly. But first, I think it's really important to set the backdrop to health and safety in the workplace. The next slide, please, Frankie. Um, so the key principles, the principal legal obligation on all employers is set out in the Health and Safety at Work Act, and that's to protect, as far as reasonably practicable, the health, safety and welfare of your employees. Businesses also have a duty to protect the health and safety of non-employees affected by their business, so that would include customers, contractors and visitors, for example. A failure to comply with these duties is a criminal offence and can be prosecuted by the enforcing authorities, which are principally the health and safety executives and local authorities. A successful prosecution leads to a criminal conviction and potentially unlimited fines. So what about the government guidance? None of the government guidance, including the COVID secure guidelines, are legally binding. They do not supersede any legal obligations relating to health and safety, employment or equalities. And it's really important that businesses continue to comply with your existing obligations. However, compliance with the guidance will usually assist you to discharge your regulatory requirements. 
The key principle for all businesses is to ensure that they can demonstrate that they've discharged their obligations by doing all that was reasonably practicable to protect their workforce or other persons. This has got to be done objectively, and it's most commonly achieved through a detailed risk assessment and the implementation of risk mitigation measures. The latest government guidance that was published this week has suggested that all businesses should conduct a coronavirus risk assessment, which seems an entirely logical and common sense approach, given it would be the same for any new risk that was faced by a business. In the current crisis, what's clear from both the written guidance and the government advice is that the key elements in relation to protecting health and safety of the returning workforce will be social distancing. It's a term we've all come to know and love over the last few weeks, and essentially it boils down to limiting occasions of person-to-person contact to contain the spread of the virus. I'll talk more about social distancing and risk assessments in a few moments. So what are the HSE's roles? Well, whilst I've been in practice, I've seen a significant change in the way the HSE have approached managing health and safety. Historically, the HSE were also used as a valuable resource by businesses for advice and guidance. For first-time offenders, even for something as serious as fatality, a business might expect a quarter of a million pound fine, but sadly those days are gone. With budget cuts and increasing pressure on the HSE, the number of inspectors, time and resource has decreased significantly. Add to that the new generation of inspectors, the introduction of the fee for intervention scheme where the HSE can charge a duty holder for their time when a material breach has been uncovered, and the Fencing Council guidelines for health and safety offences that were introduced in February 2016 that link fines to turnover, and there's an entirely different landscape. Duty holders are increasingly on guard when they're dealing with the HSE for fear of incurring large costs, and the HSE are taking far longer to deal with incidents. I have clients that had accidents four years ago still waiting for enforcement decisions, and clients who had a serious accident early last year still waiting for the HSE to take a single witness statement. But when the HSC do opt to prosecute companies, they do so with real vigour, as the fines for health and safety offences are now repeatedly exceeding £1 million for large organisations. In the current environment, it's clear that the HSC, as the primary authority responsible for health and safety, will have a key role in ensuring the workforce return to work safely. The government are going to be heavily reliant on the HSC to enforce the principles of social distancing, good hygiene practices, and safe working environments over the coming weeks and months. To that end, on Tuesday, the Business Secretary announced that the HSE would receive a 10% increase in its budget, which equates to about £14 million, to to support employers in ensuring a safe return to work. It's intended that this will cover the cost of extra call centre staff to deal with calls from businesses, as well as paying for more inspectors and equipment. The Chief Executive of the HSE, Sarah Alban, was keen to stress that the HSE will be using their increased budget provision, along with a full range of their enforcement powers, to ensure that workplaces that reopen are COVID secure. She confirmed that spot inspections will be carried out to ensure companies are keeping people safe, and this will inevitably include a review of a company's coronavirus risk assessment. Alban continued by confirming that the HSE will not hesitate to use their enforcement powers to ensure compliance with the government guidance around safe working. This is expected to include an increase in the use of improvement notices, which will ensure businesses take certain action to be compliant, prohibition notice to prevent certain activities that create a serious risk of injury, and for businesses that don't adhere to the enforcement notices or who are intentionally not following the rules, criminal prosecution. It's therefore abundantly clear that businesses must be familiar with and comply with COVID-safe practices as their employees return to work. Next slide, please, Frankie. As I've already mentioned, to support businesses in getting their workers safely back to work, the COVID-secure guidelines were published on the 11th of May. They're practical guidelines to make workplaces as safe as possible and give people confidence to go back to work. As Charlotte mentioned, there's eight documents in total across the different sectors, and they include for construction and other outdoor work, factories, plants and warehouses, offices and contact centres, and restaurants offering takeaway or delivery. Clearly, we don't have time today to go through each of the guidance documents in turn, but there's some central themes that we can pick out across the documents. And for anybody that's read more than one of them, you'll see that somebody had quite a lot of fun doing copy and paste. Uh, The next slide, please. So for the coronavirus risk assessment, this is a common theme across all of the COVID secure guidance documents. And it's to identify for businesses what actions are required to affect a safe return to work. 
plainly to make sure that the workplace is safe before the workforce returns, the risk assessment should be carried out before premises reopen. But the guidance reminds duty holders that this risk assessment should be done in consultation with their employees. That means you have to listen to what they say in terms of their concerns and talk to them about what your plans are to make them um, comfortable about returning to work. <clears throat> if you have a health and safety representative within the workforce, they should be intrinsically involved in this process. And if you don't, now is the time to get one. The results of your risk assessment should be shared with the workforce, ideally before they return to work or certainly immediately on arrival. And the guidance also encourages business to publish the results of their coronavirus risk assessment on their website where possible, stating that they would expect all employers with over 50 workers to do so. Clearly, the HSE are going to be using websites to keep an eye on risk assessments published target their inspections because they can't be everywhere. Um, and businesses with over 50 employees who fail to publish their risk assessment are likely to have to answer some very difficult questions. The guidance encourages employees to raise any health and safety issues in the workplace during the return to work process with their employer in the first instance, but also notes that if concerns can't be resolved, employees can contact the HSE directly. Now, clearly, this is going to be something that every business wants to avoid. So it would be important to engage your employees meaningfully throughout this process, and Charlotte will talk more about that later. The COVID Secure Guidelines also provide a downloadable poster, which I've put up on the next slide for you, and that businesses are told they should display in their workplace to confirm that they've complied with government guidelines. It's assumed that this is to offer employees further comfort that their employee is taking matters seriously and gives a clear indication to anyone visiting the premises that the business has been through this process. So this is available online to download and print off. And as I say, the guidance is it should be displayed. The next slide, please, Frankie. So moving to more practical advice. Obviously, it's really important that your risk assessment is well thought out and the COVID Secure Guidelines offer very practical suggestions of what you should consider. I've tried to condense some of the information here in a way that I hope is applicable to all of you and gives you some reassurance that this doesn't have to be a difficult or overwhelming challenge. What I can't do, and nor can any government guidance, is tell you exactly what you should do at your business to manage the risk of COVID-19. Every business is different and will have different considerations, so it's critical that your risk assessment is specific to your businesses and the challenge you face. What I can say to reassure you is that risk assessments will be familiar to all business managers. Whilst COVID-19 is undoubtedly a frightening subject matter with potentially deadly consequences, Businesses have been managing workplace risks that are often far more serious on the face of it than coronavirus, such as in the nuclear or heavy manufacturing industries, day in and day out for decades. So please rest assured that this is by no means uncharted territory from a practical perspective. Businesses will be used to implementing control measures to manage risks, and employees will be used to following them. Granted, we don't normally socially distance, but we do manage risks by staying away from dangerous machinery or wearing appropriate PPE at work, depending on our role. The key at the outset is to remember the purpose of the coronavirus risk assessment, and remember it's no different from any other risk assessment. You need to think about the risks your employees will face as a result of the virus and do everything reasonably practicable to minimise them, recognising that you cannot completely eliminate the risk of COVID-19. If you've got fewer than five workers or you're self-employed, you don't have to write anything down as part of your risk assessment. For every other business, the risk assessment should be written down, setting out the specific risks identified and the measures implemented to minimise those risks. If an activity is considered too high risk because suitable control measures can't be implemented and it's non-essential, it shouldn't be undertaken. So where do you start? The HSE have got interactive tools on their website to help you conduct a risk assessment. But in my view, the best approach to a coronavirus risk assessment is to start with some overarching principles and then think about where your employees and others who enter your premises and work around the site logically. Think about the various places where person-to-person -person contact might occur. So some overarching principles to think about. Reducing the number of employees on site at any one time will obviously minimise interaction. Staggering start finish and break times if you can to avoid points of contact, and implementing shift patterns. If you can reduce the number of people each person has contact with by using fixed teams or partnering, this will mean each person works with only a few others at the same time. All businesses are also encouraged in the COVID secure guidance to increase the frequency of hand washing and surface cleaning and 
and to consider using screens or barriers to separate people from each other. To do a site walkthrough, you should think about your car parks. Can you block out alternative spaces? What about employees who usually take public transport or car share? Make sure that they're clear on current government rules and guidance. Encourage cycling or walking to work if possible. Your doors. Think about appropriate entrance and exit routes for employees and third parties and label your doors accordingly. In your reception area, think about marking out two metres from the desk and the use of a plastic screen. Cloak rooms and toilets. Have you got enough space or do you need to allocate more? Will you have separate facilities for employees and third parties? When it comes to lifts, are stairs available as an alternative? And if not, can you limit the number of people in the lift at any one time, given it's a confined space? If you've got a shop floor, think about the best single direction route to mark it out with two metre intervals. Think about limiting the number of customers on the premises at any one time, and if you need to provide PPE or protective screens to protect your staff. On employee floors or warehouse spaces, think about how many people can safely be in the premises or specific areas at any one time. Do they need PPE? Do you need to control the direction of their movement? Can your employees have their own workstations and equipment to avoid sharing? What about shared equipment such as photocopiers? Do you need additional facilities, such as hand washing stations? My advice is to use signage, demarcate two metre intervals, encourage good hand hygiene, and remind employees frequently of the key principles you want them to follow. When it comes to your staff kitchen or canteen areas, you do need to be able to provide refreshments. How will you do this? How are you going to manage shared facilities? As I mentioned already, can you stagger break and lunch times? Can your employees go outside on their break? Don't forget to think about things like smoking shelters and how to avoid people congregating. So what if social distancing simply isn't possible? The COVID Secure Guidelines confirm that if where working from home is not possible, workplaces should make every reasonable effort to comply with social distancing, i.e. keeping people two metres apart. Where the social distancing guidelines cannot be followed in full in relation to a particular activity, businesses should consider whether that activity needs to continue for the business to operate and if so, take all the mitigating actions possible to reduce the risk of transmission between their staff. Practically, where social distancing can't be maintained for essential tasks, the advice is to use back-to-back -back or side-to-side -side working rather than face-to-face, -face, wherever possible, and if face-to-face -face working is required, to limit it to 15 minutes. The guidelines state that if people must work face-to-face -face for a sustained period with more than a small group of fixed partners, and you will need to assess whether the activity can safely go ahead. The guidelines reiterate repeatedly that no one is obliged to work in an unsafe work environment. In terms of other wider practical considerations, I would encourage you to think about whether you have the appropriate equipment, facilities, and PPE, and if not, how you'll source it. If you have contract cleaners, do you need to increase the frequency of cleaning, particularly in your high-risk areas? If you don't, how are you going to facilitate the increased cleaning that's recommended? Do you need to have first aid provision on site? And if so, how will this be safely and effectively provided? What should employees do if they or a member of their household display symptoms of COVID-19? The guidance on that point is particularly clear. If an, if an employee or somebody in their household is displaying symptoms, they must not leave their house to travel to work. Clearly, communication is going to be key. Sharing your risk assessment is an important first step, but you need continued communication with your employees and customers to be so sure that your workplace remains COVID secure. You should reiterate the new measures frequently. Posters, leaflets, and or announcements could be used and take steps to ensure compliance with the new ways of working. Do you need somebody to monitor the flow of customers? Do you need to ensure that um, action is taken for those that break the rules? Practically, you could consider whether you have how you will communicate with your employees and customers and whether you have up-to-date emergency contact details for all of your employees. Also, you need to consider how your employees should raise any concerns about the work environment, importantly those that are particularly vulnerable. My final piece of advice is to continue to review and adapt your risk assessment. As with all risk assessments, your coronavirus risk assessment will need to be periodically revisited to ensure it's robust, comprehensive, effective, and being followed. You should, encourage your, you should encourage employee feedback and commentary as part of this process to ensure your employees feel safe at work and that the measures are practical. 
don't forget, in the current climate, guidance and advice is constantly being updated and revised. So your risk assessment should be adapted to make sure it reflects the latest advice as the government moves through its phased recovery plan. I'd advise putting in place a process whereby every 24 or 48 hours, someone is checking for updates, be that through news alerts or the HSE's website or government website, to make sure that your risk assessment reflects the current advice. Don't forget the measures currently being implemented are new, new principles that aren't tried and tested. Clearly getting employees back into the workplace as soon as possible is going to be critical for both the economy and individual businesses. To ensure you effectively discharge your legal obligations, a return to work must be safe and eliminate or minimise person-to-person contact wherever possible. Your coronavirus risk assessment will be an important tool to help manage this return to work and identify suitable control measures to ensure your workplace is COVID secure. Keeping your risk assessment simple and sticking to the tried and tested approach that you'll all be used to will help you to implement new ways of working that are reasonable, practical and easily communicated and understood by both your employees and customers to make sure that everyone's safe, as safe as possible at this uncertain time. I hope you found that whistle stop tour useful and practical. Um, I'll be very happy to answer any questions at the end of the session, but for now, I'll hand over to Charlotte. Thanks, Claire. And next slide, please. Great. So I think this really reiterates what Claire was talking about in terms of the emphasis on collaboration and communication with your employees. And that includes unions as well. So if you do have employees who are union-backed, it's very important to get them on side. And a lot of unions have, you know, been feeding into the government and consulting with them about these specific guidelines. So you can see that the quote says, at most effective, full involvement of your workers creates a culture where relationships between employers and workers are based on collaboration, trust and joint problem solving. Real emphasis on consultation again, and that is more likely to lead to employee buy-in at the outset. So next slide, please. Thank you. However, this is obviously still a very difficult time for people. So some employees might be, you know, really willing to get back to work. They want to get back quickly. However, others might be, you know, still reluctant. It's still a real issue and real threat. So. I think you have to be sympathetic to those concerns. So one of the questions that we're getting asked a lot is what if employees refuse to attend work? What can we do about it? Can we discipline them? Can we say, you know, we're not going to pay you? I think this is a very difficult question to answer. And in all honesty, the answer is that it depends on the circumstances entirely. And I know that is a very sort of lawyer answer for you, but there is no clear-cut definitive yes, you can discipline them, no, you can't. I think the one thing I would say is that if you do take any action, it is certainly not going to be without risk of employment claims, given the situation that we are in. I think the key point when addressing you know, employee concerns and, and people who are refusing to attend work are to find out the reasons in the first instance why they don't feel comfortable. It's really important to get that concept. Again, that re-emphasizes that collaborative approach that we were talking about. So explore if there's any ways that you can alleviate the concerns. Do they think you've not complied with the COVID tour guidelines? You know, is it because they don't want to travel in on public transport? And you know, is there anything that you can do to help them? And hopefully they can then feel more comfortable. Secondly, there are obviously some specific groups that you need to pay particular attention to and different considerations might apply. So the obvious one is those who are shielding in line with government guidance who have been advised to stay at home. So you should support those people to stay at home. And many of you may have made use of the furlough scheme to do that. And helpfully, that has now been extended. So help those people to stay at home and um, make use of the extension of that scheme if you can. There are also the people who are classed as vulnerable but have not been advised to shield, so those over 70 and those with underlying health conditions. Again, you still need to pay particular attention to these people because the government has said that they need to be particularly stringent with social distancing and also because 
those people are more likely to have a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. So you need to take into consideration, you know, your duty to make reasonable adjustments. And again, that's all about consulting with the employee. But it's also, you, know, you need to maybe also think about, are there any alternative roles that they could carry out? Roles that could be carried out from home, potentially. I think in this scenario, it's much more likely that a court or a tribunal would find that it was a reasonable adjustment to search for a different role for a disabled employee in the circumstances. There's also those who are pregnant that you need to give specific consideration to. And again, search for an alternative role if they cannot socially distance in their role at work and they're not comfortable coming into work. And then generally speaking, if you cannot find an alternative role for them, the general position is that they should be suspended on full pay. So if you've spoken to the employees and there isn't one of these you know, underlying uh, issues or health conditions and you're not quite sure that they have a valid reason for these concerns, maybe you just think that they are refusing to attend work, you may well be able to take some form of action and you may decide you know, to do that, such as starting a disciplinary process. Um, on the basis of failing to follow a reasonable management instruction, it would probably be. Um, or you could say, you know, well, we, we can't pay you because you're not ready, willing, and able to turn up to work. But I think, as I said before, this is obviously not without risk. And I think the problem is we don't really have any sort of precedent here or, you know, employment tribunal cases that tell us whether this would be reasonable to try and enforce an employee returning and you know, if they resign in response to that or if you dismiss them in response to that, then it could well end up in claims. And I think as well, the other big thing that you want to avoid is PR issues and reputational issues. You obviously don't want to be the business that is on the front of the newspapers saying you, know, you forced all these employees back to work, you know, and then particularly vulnerable employees may have fallen ill. That is obviously the last thing that you want. So more so than before, you need to take into consideration everything that the employee is saying and you know, maybe be more understanding and lenient than you usually would be. And the government guidance does reflect that. So there is another quote that says, we urge employers to take socially responsible decisions and listen to the concerns of their staff. Employers and employees should come to a pragmatic agreement about their working arrangements. And then it refers individuals to ACAS if they are not satisfied with the outcome. So again, more emphasis on that consultation and being more understanding. The next point about employees' rights is what if employees fail to comply with your new rules and guidelines that you've put in place after doing this coronavirus risk assessment? So could you discipline somebody for, I don't know, not wearing PPE if you're in a sector where you need to wear PPE or for failing to follow a one-way system? or for failing to socially distance. I think most employers wouldn't be able to imagine you know, disciplining an employee for walking the wrong way around a building before all of this. But obviously, these are now very new and very real concerns for people. So I think, again, yes, you can start a process to you know, discipline those people if they fail to follow guidelines. But again, it's not without risk, and it's all about what would be reasonable in the circumstances. And I think the key point is to make sure that you've updated those policies and procedures and you've got evidence that employees are fully aware of them and have those clear guidelines in place. And they also do have a duty to cooperate to ensure their own health and safety. I think the other point I wanted to mention, which might easily be overlooked, is emphasis on any contractual changes. So as Claire said, the um, suggestions within the guidance documents for the risk assessment, they suggest staggering start and end times and maybe, you know, changing hours of work um, and what hours you need to be in the office. That's fine if that's what you think you need to do from a health and safety perspective. But obviously, remember that that could be or is likely to be a contractual change to employees' terms of employment. So you will need to get the agreement to this. And again, it goes back to the whole point about you need to consult with employees and their representatives in the first instance before you get back to work and make sure that they've got agreement to any changes. 
So I think that leads on to the next point, please, Banky. So government's next message obviously reinforces this whole um, issue of what we've just talked about in terms of you need to be mindful of your legal obligations. So this guide does not supersede legal obligations relating to health and safety, employment or equalities. And it is important that as a business or an employer, you continue to comply with your existing obligations, including those relating to individuals with protected characteristics. So make sure that you don't forget those usual employment laws. The next slide, please. So the key focus here is on equality and discrimination. And unfortunately, as we've seen in the press, the coronavirus disease itself actually seems to be having an adverse impact on certain groups, unfortunately. The obvious ones, again, are those with underlying health conditions, so potentially those people with disabilities. But there's also been the recent reports obviously published about ethnic minority groups who are more likely to get seriously ill from this disease than others. So it's, it's very difficult because we've already talked about the requirement to, turn, to return to work, but what about if somebody raises an issue on the basis of their protected characteristic and says, actually, I think this is indirectly discriminatory to um, a group of people, perhaps an ethnic minority group, because it's likely that this um, coronavirus disease, if we catch it, could have an adverse impact on me. So we need to take that into consideration, again, when you are asking people to return to work. We've also seen in the press as well that it sort of had um, an adverse impact on those who are in lower paid roles because those are the sectors which have had to shut. So the people who are in lower paid roles tend to be younger people and those who are female. So I think what this is doing is really throwing um, the spotlight on protective characteristics and equality and discrimination law. And again, you will have seen, um, I think some Premier League football players have also raised issues with this, and they are worried about being forced to return to the training ground. So this all feeds into selection criteria as well. So you may well have had to make some decisions about placing people on furlough leave and who to place on furlough leave at the start of the scheme. This also applies at the end of the scheme or when you are gradually bringing people back from furlough leave if you need to start ramping up business again. So again, think about your selection criteria and make sure that they are objective criteria. So you know, don't just automatically say, we're just going to bring back everyone who doesn't have childcare responsibilities because again, that could be indirectly discriminatory. So think about those objective criteria. We've also already touched on reasonable adjustments, and you need to make sure that you comply with this duty. And as I said, it's, it's likely that you need to think about alternative roles if possible. The emphasis is on home working, of course. So if there are roles that people who are disabled could carry out from home, then you really need to be thinking about whether you can offer them that as an alternative. And I think the other point about reasonable adjustments is also don't forget those who maybe don't have physical disability but actually may have mental health issues, especially if people are at home. So we've, we've seen that this whole situation is obviously thrown into the spotlight again, mental health issues. Um, and it's obviously a very difficult situation for everyone and some people are struggling with it. So I think for businesses, obviously, make sure you are checking in with employees regularly and communicating with them regularly. And if somebody has an issue, obviously just because they're at home, it doesn't mean that you don't have a duty to think about what adjustments you need to make for that person. So don't, you know, just because they're out of sight doesn't mean that they should be out of mind. So next slide, please, Frankie. So this is quite a somber one from the government, I think. So all of the above and your plans do need to be considered in the context of longer-term planning as well. So this quote says, the government is supporting millions of families and businesses but cannot protect every job and every business. 
So this is a bit of a reality check, unfortunately, but it is important for businesses to be realistic about what they are going to do in the future and what the business will look like. Next slide, please, Frankie. So to assist with all that, obviously, the Chancellor announced that the furlough scheme would be extended to the end of October. So it will stay in its current format until the end of July, with the government guaranteeing 8% of people's wages who are placed on furlough leave up to the cap of £2,500. And then from August to October, there's going to be some greater flexibility for people to return to work part-time and also still have their wages guaranteed. We're not quite sure what that looks like yet. And the government has said that they will announce that by the end of May. So does this therefore mean that, you know, you can delay any decisions about workforce planning um, you know, to the back end of this year? I don't think it does mean that. I do think that companies should still be workforce planning and reviewing whether they're going to need to make any changes. But this obviously has helped and has thrown that little lifeline to people. I think you know, workforce planning and changes doesn't always need to be negative. Some roles will have emerged as being absolutely key to your business after this crisis. So I think to be making sure that you think about, you know, how can you make sure that you retain those really key people and make sure that they're satisfied, particularly, you know, when cash flow isn't isn't what it necessarily was. And you will have seen again a lot of press articles and, and calls from unions to say actually the people who were more likely to receive minimum wage or lower wages have emerged as key workers um, in many sectors in in this crisis. So again, it's thinking about the value of your workforce and who you really need in disaster recovery planning. Unfortunately, on the other side of the coin, there are some roles that you may have found that you can actually do without. So they may have been people who you placed on furlough leave and now you actually think maybe there isn't a requirement to have those people in those roles in the business. But again, I think, as we've said throughout this, consultation is absolutely key. Talk to those people. Think about whether there are any different roles that they could operate in. Think about whether you could retrain people or upskill them into more business-critical roles. And, of course, you know, there will be other changes that you could make as well, potentially changes to terms and conditions, changes to shift patterns, et cetera, reduction in working hours. The other point that isn't actually on the slide, but it's also worth thinking about how to reintegrate people into your business after they've been on a period of furlough leave. It might not seem like, you know, a very long time that they have been away from the business, but actually, you know, two, three, four months or, or longer, if they are on for the full period, can be a long time. So maybe just think about what you can do to make sure that they are up to date with everything, they're up to date with how these new policies operate in terms of risk assessments, et cetera, as well, much as you would if someone was returning from maternity leave. So this all brings us on to the final statement. Next slide, yes. So the government has said in its guidance documents that the world will not return to normal after COVID-19. Much of the global economy is likely to change significantly and the UK will need to be agile in adapting to and shaping this new world. So this leads on from, you know, the post-failure planning, the workforce planning. And it's really about looking at business strategies and embracing, you know, this term that everyone is coining as the new normal. So next slide, please. So I've just put a few key considerations on this slide in terms of business strategies. So I think it's clear that agile and flexible working is going to remain at the forefront for every business. And as we've said, it is still the default position, work from home, if you can work from home, that hasn't changed. And we've also seen that there are you know, some significant benefits in people working from home. And the government has actually made reference to that in its guidance documents as well. So one particular positive is the impact on the environment and the reduction in the carbon footprint, which is obviously really great. Also, we hope that it will helpful, be helpful in leading to a more diverse workforce and, and flexible working patterns, perhaps, 
for those with childcare responsibilities. And, you know, do we really need this nine-to-five model anymore? Maybe not. It might actually be useful to have different people available and online at different times. And businesses should really be thinking, you know, do you need to change your approach or your policies in terms of flexible working requests, for example? So obviously people do have a right to request a flexible working pattern. And I do think if people have been successfully working from home for a number of months, it is then going to be very difficult to objectively justify any policy to have people in the office, you know, for a certain amount of time and, and certain days a week. So think about that as well. Obviously, it will bring challenges as well in terms of how you engage with employees and how you monitor their performance. And this probably feeds into the next point, actually, as well, about technology. So the government has repeatedly encouraged the use of technology and greater investment in technology for businesses. And this will help, you know, in a number of ways. Obviously, we all need technology to work from home effectively. And it can also help with disaster recovery planning because it means that more roles should be able to be carried out remotely in the future if this pandemic continues or there's other unforeseen events. I think it can also help with social distancing as well. So, again, we're seeing a lot in the news about what the new world will look like. And there's emphasis on contactless payment. Um, you know, McDonald's are, are trialling things to make sure that there's less face-to-face -face contact in their restaurants. If you go to a restaurant in the future, are you really going to be served by a waiter or will you order your food via an app, maybe? So lots of different ways that technology can help there. It can also help with, um, I think, cleaning processes as well. So we've seen that Walmart has employed robots, robots to um, clean its stores. And again, less human contact really helps with the whole social distancing piece. And the quote from the government guidance actually also says that the UK research and innovation will welcome grant applications for proposals to develop new technologies and approaches that help the UK mitigate the impact of this virus. So again, I think the UK is you know, really putting the emphasis on investment in technology and wanting to be at the forefront of this new world. We've already touched on you know, the mental health and wellbeing piece, and this is really important and has been thrown to the forefront and should be top of your agenda, really. And again, similarly with stakeholder engagement, that has really been the message, I think, all the way through this presentation. It's key in all of this. So right at the beginning, now, while you are trying to get people back to work and you're completing your risk assessment, you need to engage with employees. But it's also really important to involve them in any future planning. That might be, obviously, you know, traditional consultations about role changes, et cetera, but also more creative things um, in terms of what we've been talking about, working patterns, agile and flexible working, technology. I think it can really help if you get all of your employees in the organization engaged. And again, that leads to employee buy-in when you do make changes. So I think obviously while all of these changes can be quite difficult to implement, it's important that both employers and employees embrace the new challenges ahead. And hopefully that will help you maximize possibilities for your business in the future. So I think that brings us to the end of the presentation, and we can now move on to the question session. So, Frankie, do we have any questions that have come in? Hi, Charlotte. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. So our first question is, um, is anxiety about using public transport a valid reason not to return to the workplace? Okay. I think that probably has both employment aspects and health and safety aspects, Claire. So, again, I think from an employment perspective, it's really about it could well be a reasonable concern. So it goes back to talking about what the issue is. So government guidance obviously says avoid public transport if you can. So as an employer, can you assist the employee in any way? Could you, you know, give them a parking space and, and help them to drive to work? Or could you potentially talk about changing their start time so that they're avoiding busy commuting times? And again, ultimately, if you do want to say, you know, that's your responsibility to travel to work, 
we're therefore going to discipline you for, for not returning or we can't pay you if you won't return then I think again it is very risky at this time because we don't know whether that would be considered to be reasonable anything from a help and safety angle Claire no, I think I think the point I would just reiterate is that obviously your obligation as an employer to protect the health, safety and welfare of your employees is when they are at work. Um, so in terms of ensuring they can safely get to work, that, that isn't part of your obligation and undertaking. Um, obviously, as Charlotte mentioned, it's useful to talk to your employees, get a feel for what their concerns are, um, remind them about the recommended government guidance for wearing face covering in enclosed spaces such as public transport. Um, but ultimately, you can't control uh, anything outside of your workplace. So in terms of health and safety legislation obligations, you should be focusing on, on the workplace and getting that secure. Okay, great. And the next question that we have is, will employers be expected to pick up some of the cost of furloughed employees after August? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, again, as I said, we don't have the details of the scheme yet, but in Rishi Sunak's announcement, he did say that they, after August, they would expect employers to bear some of the costs. I don't quite know how that's going to work. Maybe if you know the employees go back part-time, the employer might have to pick up what would be the part-time salary, and then government tops back up to 8%. I'm not quite sure about the mechanics of it, but what they have said is that they should still be guaranteed 8% of their wage up to the cap. So I think more details should come out on that by the end of this month. And next question is, can I tell employees if a co-worker is tested positive for the coronavirus? Okay. Again, this probably has a, a bit of both in terms of employment and health and safety. I think obviously it's important to think about your duty of confidentiality towards your employees and obviously it could create a bit of stigma and some people might not be comfortable with that information being shared I guess with their colleagues but we do know that if you've been in contact with someone who has coronavirus then it's really important that you isolate so I think hopefully in most scenarios employers would be able to make people aware that they had potentially been in contact with someone who had tested positive without actually revealing their identity. Um, but I appreciate that, you know, that might not always be the case in every scenario. So I think if you can get consent to say you know, they'd be happy for you to disclose it, if not, try your best to keep confidentiality, I think. Yeah, I, I think safety. Yeah, yeah, I think I would add to that. Uh, of course, because you've got this duty to protect the health, safety, and welfare of your employees, you have a legal obligation to ensure that your employees coming to work are safe. Um, and therefore, if you are in a position where you know somebody has uh, tested positive for the coronavirus, then you have a duty to protect the employees that could have been exposed to them. Um, so that means making sure people that are infected don't come into work because they can risk exposing others, but also advising people if they need to self-isolate because you have that information um, to, to share with them. So I think whilst there is a duty of confidentiality and it's health-sensitive information, there is a wider obligation in terms of ensuring the rest of your workforce is safe. Um, obviously, as Charlotte mentioned, if there's an ability to do that without um, disclosing the identity of the person who's tested positive that's preferable um, so it could simply be saying we've got reason to believe you may have come into contact with somebody that's tested positive uh, that could have been in any uh, communal areas couldn't it so hopefully it won't necessarily give the identity of the individual but but I think mm -hmm. it's it's one of those where you have overriding obligations under health and safety uh, legislation so I don't see how you couldn't tell your employees yeah the next one is about temperature checks. So can we require employees to have their temperature taken each day before entering the workplace? Mm. Again, I think that this has uh, both an employment aspect and a health and safety aspect. Um, you do need consent from employees to medical examinations, and I think you know temperature checks would fall within that realm, particularly if they are intrusive ones. So you would need consent from people to actually submit the temperature readings. Although I have seen, I think there are, there is some technology now which means that you don't actually have to take it, like you know, in your mouth or anything. But um, I think 
employees are likely to provide consent because they understand the seriousness of the situation. And if that is going to help people get back to work, then hopefully they would consent to that. But I'm not sure, and Claire, you can probably answer this, I'm not sure whether it's actually recommended as part of the COVID-19 guidelines yet. It's not. It's not one of the requirements, and I think it's because of the fact that it largely does rely on consent, and therefore the guidance focuses very much on what's in the control of the employer to implement, so good hand hygiene, segregation, etc. Next question is probably more one for Claire. So what happens when employers when, when employees raise concerns about the safety of their workplace but they're not satisfied with the outcome? Yeah, so as I said um, earlier, the government guidance essentially states that you should raise any concerns with your employer in the first instance. Um, that could be through your health and safety representative. It could be by contacting your union. Um, but essentially, the government is keen to ensure that employers deal with these issues in the first instance and take responsibility for their work. Um, what they have said is that if issues persist, that employees are able to contact the HSE um, and there is an email address and a telephone number available uh, for employees to use. Obviously, um, that is something that all businesses will want to avoid at all costs because nobody wants the HSE knocking on their door at the best of times, let alone at these times. Um, so I would certainly advise all businesses to have in place an appropriate avenue for employees to report their concerns and deal with these sensitively and proportionately to try and avoid any reports to the HSE. Um, obviously, if the concerns are legitimate and risks can't be effectively mitigated, then you ought to think about whether the workplace should be open. Have another question. Yes. Um, so somebody's asked. They have people who find it difficult to work at home all of the time, and so so they're coming into work some of the time. Can they argue that that's consistent with the guidance? Uh, I'll deal with that if you want, Charlotte. And um, so I think in terms of the government guidance, it, it is clear that those who should who can work from home should. But as I said earlier, it's guidance not a legal obligation. You don't have to follow it. It is guidance. And I think what's really important is that you consider what works for your business and your employees. So as an employee, you've got a duty to look after your employees. I keep going on about this, their health, safety, but also their welfare. And that quite possibly includes offering them the social interaction that they would get by coming into work, if that's the reason why they want to come into the workplace. Um, so my view is that as long as the number of employees at work can be managed safely and effectively, that everyone that's coming into the workplace is aware of the rules and procedures in place as a result of your risk assessment, and that there's no particular problem with employees coming into the office, then I don't see there being a fundamental problem with that. But it should be managed carefully, given the guidance. Mm -hmm. And I think um, you know that will help especially what employees want, they may well want to have some days in the office and some days at home. So, again, that will help you get their agreement to whatever the processes should be, and it gives them that flexibility as well and maybe more comfort that they are not in contact with people as much. Yeah, time for um, a couple more, maybe. Thank you. Another one for Claire. So, does the health and safety rep need to be nominated by employees, or can the health and safety team i.e. senior managers within the business do this? Uh, no, sadly not. Um, you do have to consult with your uh, health and safety representative that has been nominated either by a trade union or by the workers. Um, as an employer, not allowed to decide who the representative will be. So okay. unfortunately, that can mean you get stuck with somebody that's tricky, but, but it is what it is, I'm afraid. Um, one for Charlotte. Should we consider obtaining consent from employees on their return to work? Yeah, that's a good question. So, again, it goes back to what does the return to work look like, I think. So, as we've already talked about, the, the plans and processes that are put in place should be communicated to employees anyway and should have been done in consultation with employees. I don't think you necessarily need their consent to say, you know, we're coming back to work now and these are the policies and processes that will be in place. But as we talked about, if you are going to change working patterns and change shift patterns, start and finish times, have certain teams in and out of the office at any one time, then we talked about the fact that that may well be a contractual variation. And in those circumstances, yes, you should get some form of agreement, preferably written agreement, 
to say, yeah, I'm happy to vary my terms in this way, even if it's, you know, on a temporary basis uh, to affect the return to work. We've got time for a few more. Yeah, we can take a couple more. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, if people need to drop off, that's fine. So we've got one asking about employees over 70. So if they return to the workplace of their mm -hmm. own choice, do they face a great, does the business face a great liability if they get COVID-19, even if they've done everything they can do, pos uh, anything, mm -hmm. everything that's possible? So, for example, providing PPE? Mm -hmm. I suspect that's probably one for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think what's really important to take away from um, health and safety legislation is that you have to do all that is reasonably practicable. That doesn't mean you have to do everything. Um, so you have to work out what is reasonably practicable for your business. And the way you go through that um, and to establish those things is through your risk assessment. Um, so your risk assessment should take account of higher risk categories of persons. And if there are additional control measures that you need to put in place specifically for them, so it could be that you have um, higher risk individuals because of their age or underlying um, vulnerabilities working in a particular location, um, so much further away from others on a particular floor, for example. Um, they could have their own start and end times, even if it's only 10 minutes either side of the, the other uh, shift paths and start times. Um, important that they have their own equipment, important that they have uh, required PPE, which could be additional to the PP required for others, but ultimately you can't reduce the risk to zero. So as long as you can demonstrate by your risk assessment that you've done all that was reasonably practicable on an objective basis, you'll have discharged your obligations. So that is identifying the risk, putting in place control measures to minimise that risk as far as possible. And that is all that can be expected of you. You can't protect everybody from this disease. It's not possible. Um, and the expectation isn't that you do that. It's just that you have taken into account the risks and responded appropriately. I've just seen a good one come in from Kitty. Um, for me, is the question of can employees be forced to take holidays? And I'll say that's a good one because we just had further guidance actually released from the government yesterday on the position in respect of holidays to clarify that for people. So it, it talks about whether people can take holiday while on furlough leave and confirms that they can do that. In terms of whether employers can force employees to take holiday, it, the short answer is yes, you can do. You need to give them enough notice to say that they should take the holiday. And the notice period needs to be double the length of the leave. So if you're asking an employee to take one week's period of leave, they need to give them two weeks' notice of that. So it is within your control to an extent what periods of leave people take. Now, obviously, there have been these amendments as well that have come into force in terms of the new regulations, which now allow holiday carryover. So I think the new guidance makes it quite clear that the circumstances it did envisage were the sort of people who are in key worker roles where they are you know, needed at the moment and maybe there isn't enough cover. So it's not reasonably practical for employers to allow them to take that holiday. I think that in the first instance, that is what that is supposed to be used for. So, yes, if you want your employees to use up some of their holiday, you don't want um, a big period at the end of the year when lots of people are trying to take leave, et cetera, you, you can ask them to do that. Obviously, from an employee relations perspective, it's better if you can ask people to resolve that amongst themselves and, and say, you know, please can we take holiday by a certain date. If not, you can serve them with notice to require them to take it, yes. And so one of the other questions, questions that's, that's on the side is, um, do we need evidence of health issues, i.e. doctor notes, et cetera? Um, I assume that that's in relation to probably a couple of points. One, in terms of how you make um, a risk assessment for those people returning to work, um, and if they've got particular medical conditions, how you might need to adjust the workplace for them by way of additional PPE, et cetera, and control measures. But I suspect it's also got to do with um, protected characteristics, et cetera, Charlotte. So I don't know whether you want to just pick up on that. Could you just repeat that one again for me, Claire? Sorry, yeah, I'm just scrolling so, down the other list. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, do we need evidence of health issues, i.e. doctor notes, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, from employees. So, yeah, I think it's a really good idea to keep medical records, again, particularly because you've obviously got an obligation um, if somebody is disabled, definitely to make sure you are 
making reasonable adjustments in respect to those people. Um, so, yeah, I think that is a good idea. I think the, the specific rules, obviously, if people are off sick with coronavirus, um, and I think there's a new way now of showing that you are off sick with it without having to produce um, medical evidence, because it's very difficult now, isn't it, to get medical evidence. So, again, mm. I think be pragmatic about you know, what you accept for, for those sorts of scenarios. And, Charlotte, what if somebody re refuses to return to work because they say they have an underlying health condition? Can an employer request that employee to provide evidence of that? So I don't see why not in normal circumstances. Again, in a lot of these cases, it may well be obvious if they are within the group that is classed as more vulnerable. So, you know, those who are over 70, et cetera. But I appreciate some underlying health conditions you may not already know about. So, yes, I do think it is reasonable to request that information so that you have the full information available when you are speaking to them to alleviate those risks. But, again, I think it is all about, you know, let's take this collaborative approach and, you know, not do it on a I'm insisting you provide this just so you can prove it type basis. I think, you know, accept reasonable evidence of something and then talk about how you can alleviate their concerns. We've got any others before we wrap up? I'm conscious of getting to 10 past now. I was going to say, I think there's quite a lot of questions, and I, I think I would encourage people to, you've got um, both Charlotte and my email addresses on the slide, so please do feel free to contact us, um, and we'll try and deal with any questions that you've got. Somebody yeah. um, asked earlier about copies of the notes that we've prepared um, whilst uh, preparing the slides, etc. for you. Just to make you aware, the slides will be shared with you, as will um, some summary notes and checklists but also the video recording of the webinar um, will also be made available as well. So um, that will all be sent around uh, in the coming days. So you'll have access to all of that. Yeah, and I'd just reiterate, again, just feel free to get in contact with us if you do have any questions that weren't answered. So I think, you know, we can we can leave it there. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, I hope, you know, I wish you good luck with all this future workforce planning and planning for these risk assessments. There's a lot of information out there. So, you know, let us know if you do need help. But we hope that that has been useful for you and has made sense of, you know, some of those quotes from the government. Thanks very much. Thank you. To find out more about the future world of work, visit the Walker Morris website at www.walkermorris.co.uk forward slash client resources forward slash dealing with the next normal.